So our text this evening is second. There are a number of issues that the church confronts that are not always easy to sort out. And the last time when we dealt with verses 6 through 12, the main issue was uh, the need for you as Christians to be working people in order to meet your own responsibilities, as well as to support those who are truly in need and those who labor in the gospel. The command of God in verse 10 is that if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Also, now such persons, and the apostle is talking about those who are not willing to work but are busy bodies, he says, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. His commands are simple and clear enough, and nevertheless, it's not always easy to know how and when to apply these commands. There's a danger that we might go overboard with this command and refuse to help the needy altogether. There's also the possibility of being over, overly judgmental and harsh toward those in need, as though all people in need are loafers and spongers. It happens that those who are being asked for help have been burned so many times by con artists that they're tired of exercising charity. And so the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So the command to stop feeding the loafer and sponger is not meant to stifle true, appropriate charity in the church. There's also the issue of discipline that also comes up in these verses in connection with these brothers who are refusing to work. And proper discipline is also an issue that is not always easy to sort out. How should a person be treated in the church who is not acting like a Christian? What should your attitude and actions be toward a member of the church who seems more like an enemy than a brother? Is it biblical for you to regard another member of the church as an enemy? When is discipline too strict? When is it too lax? Again, the command applies, as for you brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Discipline is a good work that we are to exercise toward each other in love. It's one of those things that is not always done properly, but that doesn't mean that it should be stopped. And uh, the verses before us this evening are God here telling you and me that discipline must be done. That, first of all, but also God is telling us in these verses the spirit and attitude in which this discipline ought to be done. In general, our text presents us with the reality that doing what is right is not always easy. Um, We wouldn't be be given this exhortation except that it is easy for us to grow weary in doing good. Uh, It's not natural, even for us as true born-again believers, to know and to do what is right which is why God confronts us and teaches us from his word. First of all, what is right? And as you come to know what you must do, it is then your responsibility to do what God says and to do it even when it is difficult. You must be obedient to God regardless of personal cost. And though this principle certainly applies to every command of God, this evening we are going to consider what it means to not grow weary in doing good in the context of, here in which Paul spoke these words in the context of what's going on in the Thessalonian church. And so by the end of the sermon, you ought to have a better understanding of how this command applies specifically to the issues of charity and discipline. So the command before us is to not grow weary in doing good. And we begin with charity, the good deed 
of helping your neighbor who is truly in need. Don't grow weary of doing this good work. Don't grow weary of your neighbor, even if there is seemingly a a constant and perpetual need. Um, To be given this instruction implies that it's not always easy to help those in need. Almost always, I think it's probably safe to say, to use the word always, in helping someone, it requires of us some kind of sacrifice. Uh, For sure, it it can take money, it can take time. Uh, It's just a fact that most charity work is going to be inconvenient in some way. And uh, what is ironic is that typically those who are going to have the resources to give to those in need are those who are already busy in their own work. Um, You who are daily working in the trenches are acutely aware of how money doesn't come easy. Um, You have what you have through your own personal sweat and blood, and it's very easy to decide to spend your hard-earned money on yourself rather than on your neighbor in need. And it may very well happen that you are called upon for physical, practical help when you feel personally spent. Um, maybe you've worked hard all day. Um, maybe you are called upon in the, in the middle of the night or at some other inconvenient hour. What might your reaction be if you are called upon to give help to someone when you are already tired from yourself having worked hard all day? And what doesn't help the situation is the fact that there are plenty of people who take advantage of charity. It's, in their minds, free money, free labor. And this reality is aggravating, and it's very frustrating to those of, to those of us who work hard for what we have. As a pastor's son, I, through the years, saw my dad get burned again and again by con artists. Um, pastors and, and churches are typically magnets for people who are truly in need and for those who really know how to work the system. And uh, growing up, I can remember people coming from, uh, to my dad uh, from time to time for help, and I would say that almost always my dad did give them something. There was a couple that, that came to his office at the church. They claimed they desperately needed a few dollars for some gas to get somewhere, and then a few weeks later they showed up with the very same exact story. And when my dad pointed out that he had seen them before and they had heard this story before, um, they immediately uh, turned tail and left. They had apparently forgotten to take uh, my dad's church off of their list. Um, in another instance, a young man asked for help, and he had this very elaborate story, he sat in my dad's office and, and, and told this big sob story. It sounded very legitimate, and my dad gave him money a week later in the newspaper, was this article of this particular guy. There was his face in a, in a picture there in the newspaper, this con artist who was going around and hitting up people and, and churches throughout the area. And then there is, you probably have heard such accounts. Um, I have a firsthand account um, related by one of my relatives of a guy who was pan, panhandling in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant from a wheelchair A short time later, he was seen getting up out of his wheelchair, folding it up, and walking away. And when his fraud was confronted, he got very angry. And such stories could go on. I have to admit that these true stories and others tend to make me very cynical towards strangers who ask for help. 
um, along these lines. It's easy to become overly harsh and judgmental toward those in need. You and I sometimes judge people for not being able to take care of themselves, and we uh, tend to accuse them of being lazy or incompetent. Um, before we help, we might you know, be tempted to just grill them with many prying questions. And uh, we wonder to ourselves why they don't just do this or that to take care of their own needs. And so it's easy to take on a prideful, condescending attitude toward those who are in need. And the fact of the matter is that people find themselves in a whole array of different situations and, and circumstances often beyond their control. There are people in this world without work, and it's not by choice. They want to work. They try to help. Sometimes people are struggling because of unplanned circumstances. It has nothing to do with being lazy or incompetent. People get laid off because of company cutbacks. Um, sometimes people are trapped in jobs that they absolutely hate, and they might come across as lazy because their heart is not in their job, but the simple fact that they show up every day they, and they do what is asked of them, that is a testimony to their faithfulness. Some people are, by their physical makeup, able to do more work than others. Some people have physical ailments that affect their ability to do things, and others around them don't even know about it. Maybe that person who is working slowly and that you assumed is lazy is moving as fast as his injured body allows. Or maybe he is on medication and it makes him sleepy. We need to be careful about judging people without knowing the facts. And careful not to make false assumptions. It's better to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I hope you can agree that it is better to err on the side of being generous and in the process um, helping a few people here and there who don't deserve it rather than to be so stiff with our giving that those who are truly in need are left in a lurch. It's not our job to run other people's lives, but it is our job to try and do what is best for others and, uh, and to do what is, um, is, uh, is good stewardship on our part. Um, we ought not to give help indiscriminately without doing some kind of evaluation of the situation, but uh, let's not over-evaluate and let's not fall into the trap of assuming that because someone is struggling in life, there must be some sin or some failure involved. And what can easily happen is that we use the commands of God as an excuse to justify our own selfishness and our, our natural tendency to be Scrooges. These commands, if anyone is willing, uh, should say not willing to work, let him not eat, and this command to, that they do their work quietly to earn their own living, these commands are not meant to stifle charity and generosity. But it is our natural tendency to twist God's commandments to, to, to benefit ourselves. It's a testimony to our sinfulness that we don't always want to be generous. And um, it is our sinfulness that leads us to look for excuses not to do what is right. And so it happens that we might look for weaknesses in those who are needy so that we can claim we are being biblical when we turn them away. Your attitude toward those in need might be something like, take care of yourself. You've done this to yourself. You're a sponger to come to me for help, and if I help you, you're only going to become more dependent upon me. God wants you to struggle so that you will learn to be diligent. Many of us would rather not take the time to evaluate each situation, but to put everyone in need in the same category. That way, we don't have to help anyone. 
people of God, I would urge you to take the time this evening to think about the attitude of Jesus Christ toward those who are in need. I'd have you to consider the interactions that take place in the scriptures between Jesus and those in need. How does Jesus make people feel who come to him for help? So I'd point out a number of passages here that I'd like to, to quote. So Psalm 72:13 says, He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. Psalm 34, 6 says, This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Isaiah 29, 19, once more the humble will rejoice in the Lord, the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 and 18, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Matthew 9, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Mark chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Hebrews 2, verse 17 For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And then Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And if you think about what it is we need, most of all what we need is salvation Our greatest need is the forgiveness of our sins. And I would ask you, does Jesus ever turn a sinner away who comes to him for the mercy of salvation? Does Jesus have a judgmental attitude towards sinners that makes makes us hesitant to ask him for help? Um, There's that, that verse that those of us in adult Sunday school class have been spending some time on meditating on, and it's John 6, 37, where Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, or the translation we've been using is, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. He actually encourages us to come to him. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so may we be like Jesus in our interactions with people. May it, be, may it be that people can see in us a likeness of Christ because we are gladly, willingly, joyfully setting aside our own interests in order to help others. May it be that people can come to us for help and know that we are not going to be annoyed or irritated by their request. May we be like our master who was in, whose entire life was lived for others. Jesus gave even his own life for our benefit, dying in our place so that our sins could be forgiven. It puts things in perspective, does it not? When we compare our giving a few dollars or a few hours of time, compare that to Jesus giving his entire life. So I've preached on these verses. I have preached them well aware of the fact that unlike those in Thessalonica, um, you are not lazy people. 
although there is a tendency, right? We're all by nature centers. There's a tendency for all of us to be lazy from, uh, from time to time, but I don't think that this church has this particular problem per se. Um, if anything, you probably tend to go in the other direction of being so independent that you feel uncomfortable asking for the help of others. It's possible to be independent to a fault. Um, refusing help or refusing to ask for help can actually be an issue of pride. You and I can be reluctant to reveal need because it seemingly reveals weakness or inadequacy. It takes a certain amount of humility to admit you need help. And it can be difficult to ask for help when you understand the importance of meeting your own responsibilities and you don't want to be a bother to others. But isn't that part of the problem? That we perceive asking for help as being a bother. In our pride, we don't want to humble ourselves before others, and it ought not to be that way. Every day, think of it, every day we have to ask Jesus for help. Only he can carry us through the day. Only he can forgive our sins. Only he can keep us on the right path and our dependence upon him. It's not a bother to him. It's good that we humble ourselves before Christ. In fact, it's the only way of salvation. And it's also good for us to need each other from time to time. It's okay to admit you can't do everything on your own all the time. And to treat your neighbor in a Christ-like way, don't ever make your neighbor feel like a bother. Needing help does not make you less of a person. Needing help is not a sin. Needing help is part of our life in a fallen world. And needing help is actually an opportunity to experience the love of Christ through his people. It's both good to help others, it's also good to be helped. And so help one another, and don't let your pride get in the way of letting others do good toward you. Don't let your independent, stand in, independent spirit stand in the way of letting Christ minister to you through his people. Don't dictate to Christ how he should help you. Don't be a person who says to Christ, well, I want you to help me by forgiving my sins, but just leave me alone when it comes to meeting my earthly needs. You need to recognize your dependence on Christ in all of life. And so let us summarize the situation this way. On the one hand, there are those who ought to be willing to humble themselves and to ask for help as needed. If this is you, then you are admonished to allow others to be able to keep the command that is here in the text before us. Do not grow weary in doing good, in meeting the charity uh, of those, uh, providing charity to those who are in your church body. On the other hand, there are those who need to be pushed to do more for themselves, and uh, giving things to them would be detrimental. But do not allow those cases to put out the fires of your generosity. Rather, do not grow weary in doing good. Uh, we need these admonitions because we are sinful people. On the one hand, in our dealing with sin, it's, it's easy, it's even natural for us to allow sin to go un- It's not doing good to the sinner when the church lets sin go unchallenged. God tells us through the Apostle Paul in verse 6, Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So that's back in verse 6. He says, keep away. 
Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. And he repeats essentially the same instruction here in verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this epistle, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Those who are living in sin, in this instance, the ongoing sin of refusing to work, they need to understand that they shouldn't expect to enjoy the fellowship of the body of Christ as though everything is fine. It is a tendency for the church to ignore sin in its members. It's a common thing to just let it go, just to ignore it, let it go. Some view that as merciful. Um, Some hesitate to say or to do anything to a person living in in sin because of the thinking that it's prideful to, to confront a person with their sin. When we all sin, it is true we all sin, but it's also true that a Christian who is right with God and right with the body of Christ is one repents of sin when he sins and so there is this reality that discipline takes work it's not easy it's usually uncomfortable to confront someone's sin but to have a hands-off approach is contrary to God's will in fact God says to take note of that person this disobedient person as a session and as a body we're to take notice of those who are not living obediently The text is saying more than just take notice. It it says mark that person. Um, Now, how exactly this is to be done is a good question. You can read a lot of different commentators on this, and some have thought that this verse supports the practice of putting the name of a person being disciplined in the bulletin. Um, Our book of discipline talks about the, the censures of indefinite suspension, of deposition, and excommunication being communicated to the congregation and such practices would certainly be in line with the spirit of this verse but yet doesn't appear that Paul had here something that formal in mind and it's probably going too far to say that 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 is the exact and only thing that Paul had in mind here the very least the instruction to note or to mark that person means to give attention to this person to what they are doing and uh, to take notice of it and then to appropriately respond, as Paul goes on to say. He says, notice the purpose of such noting is that the church would have nothing to do with him. That's what the ESV says. I think that's, frankly, an an unfortunate uh, translation. Um, I prefer, uh, for example, the New King James, which says that the church withdraw from him. Um, The idea is to withdraw from him in, in, in full fellowship. They must mark him out so as to not keep company with him. So it, if we think of, of you know, this, this translation that we have here of have nothing to do with him, well, what is that? How do we do that when it says later to not regard him as an enemy but warn him as a brother? That's, that's having something to do with him, right, if we are going to warn him as a brother. So these later interactions that are commanded would tell us that this is not, it's not correct to say have nothing to do with him, but it is talking about withdrawing from him in fellowship. So like William Hendrickson explains uh, the meaning here, he says here in verse 14, the command is, let there be no intimate association with him. That's really getting at the Greek here. Or do not get mixed up with him. So the members must not associate uh, Hendrickson says, with such an individual on intimate terms. They should not welcome him into the company of close friends, agreeing with him, approving of his conduct, etc. 
Linsky in his commentary points out from the Greek that the congregation is not to go out of their way to push him away, but rather in a passive sense, they are not to be associated with the sinner. And Linsky writes, as verse 15 shows, this does not mean breaking off all intercourse with him, but it does mean breaking off all association with him in the congregational church life. And then he goes on to make, um, this is Linsky in his commentary, makes an unfortunate um, statement here, I believe. He says, um, he says, it doesn't mean breaking off all association with him in the congregational church life, a questioning as to whether such a man is still a brother. Well, in verse 15, we are told that he is to be considered a brother, even though he's not acting like one. And uh, perhaps there would be a time to evaluate if he is truly a brother if he doesn't repent. So the man needs to know that he is sinning. He needs to know that the congregation as a body devoted to Christ is not going to tolerate his lifestyle. He needs to be ashamed of his behavior so that he will repent and change. And uh, this is the precise purpose of this discipline according to verse 15. It says, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. Again, um, I would prefer it to say, and do not keep company with him. What's the purpose? That he may be ashamed. It's good for the disobedient Christian to be ashamed. For being ashamed is where the humility for repentance begins. When a sinner is ashamed, he then goes to, to, to Christ and to those he has offended, and he asks for forgiveness, and of course that's how fellowship is restored, and of course that's the goal. Do not grow weary in this important good work of discipline because it is how God restores sinners. And while sin must not be tolerated in the church, the church is also urged to not give up on this erring brother. Verse 15 provides the balance to overly harsh discipline. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And the implication of this instruction is that the man is acting like an unbeliever. The man is doing things for which he ought to be ashamed. There are reasons why perhaps he... He might be thought of as an enemy, and uh, yes, even today and even um, in this church, you and I as Christians, it's, it's very possible that things are done that are shameful, and uh, sometimes Christians here and elsewhere go so far in their sin that they make it hard for fellow believers to have feelings of love and affection toward them, and uh, the temptation is perhaps in the name of discipline to shun this person as an enemy so as to never interact with him again. Um, but even in the case of these Thessalonian members who have failed to change their ways, and they've been instructed, remember, many times, Paul instructed them while he was with them in person. He instructed them in the first letter. He's now instructed them again in the second letter. And he's saying that if they're still disobedient, he's urging the congregation to, yes, mark them, to not associate with them in full fellowship. But he also says, do not regard them as enemies still interact with them, to at least warn them, warn them as brothers, warn them, the hope that they will repent. Don't hate them, even if they have sponged off of you in selfish ways or done other disobedient things against the commands of Scripture. In love, work with them. In love, admonish them with further and ongoing instruction. Be an example to them. Do not grow weary in doing good. And so, your calling is to be like Christ toward sinners. 
Yes, we read in the Gospels and we see in Christ's example that there comes a point when those who persist in sinful rebellion, he confronts them and he tells them that they do not belong to him. There comes a time for excommunication and a time for declaring a person to no longer be a brother. But before that, note his sin. Change your interactions with him so that he knows that fellowship with him is broken and warn him as a brother that your hope and prayer is that he will repent and show his true colors. Warn them with the understanding that we don't know what's going to happen. Be praying and warning, hoping that they will repent. And it's true that Jesus does not work with sinners to lead them to repentance forever. There comes a point when it's over. But Jesus is also very patient and long-suffering with sinners. And has he not been so with you? Have you not found him to be willing to forgive you countless times, even for the same sin? Is it not a reason for joy how Christ works with you and leads you to walk in the paths of righteousness? Without the cross of Jesus Christ, without Christ atoning for our sins, none of us would be a brother or sister of Christ. And may your appreciation of Christ's love be manifested in your attitude toward an erring brother. Your calling is to never give up doing what is good. Good for others, good for the cause of Christ. His love for you demands this response as a part of your devotion to him. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his selfless giving attitude, not just an attitude, but even giving himself very sacrificially to the death of the cross. Father, may Christ be our example in being charitable and generous. At the same time, Father, give us wisdom as we evaluate who, those who are truly in need. Lord, it takes great wisdom. We want to be good stewards. We don't want to waste funds by giving them to people who are con artists, people who should not be helped. So, Father, we pray that you would help us uh, to be able to discern those situations. But, Father, may we um, not leave people in a lurch because of being overzealous. Um, Lord, may we not grow weary in uh, doing the hard and, and good work of charity. And, Father, we pray as well in the work of discipline that we would not grow weary in doing good, that we would be willing to carry on this work which is not pleasant, and we pray that you would use uh, the work of discipline to shame those who are disobedient and that they would come to repentance. And we pray, Father, that we would warn them, not as an enemy, but as a brother, so that we would have the right attitude and spirit toward them, that, Father, our, our true, true goal would be their good, um, their repentance, their restoration to the church. And, uh, Father, that we would not imagine that as long as they live, that they are somehow without hope of forgiveness um, and, and without hope of being uh, a part of the fellowship of your church. Lord, we thank you that there is no sin that can keep us out of fellowship as long as we repent. So, Father, may we take these words to heart. May they be a, applied to our lives that we would not grow weary in doing good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.